Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? One, two, three, four. This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. For the second half of these interviews, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash pryingpriest. But for now, enjoy the show. We met in... Perhaps 2010, I'd like to say. I think we knew of each other through doing improv in high school and, and everything like that. But, yes. Um, I don't think we started hanging out till we started doing improv together at the University of Winnipeg. Correct. Yes, that's right. correct. I remember running into you in 2011, my first semester of undergrad. And yep. I saw you and I was like, oh, that's Yuri. Mm-hmm. Who I didn't really know. Yeah. I didn't know I remember, you went there. I remember getting coffee all the time at Bodhi. Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. And uh, Kevin would always serve me. Mm-hmm. And then I would see you and Kevin hanging out there mm-hmm. and stuff. So, um, Sweet. Well, you have, I think, personally, a very interesting story. You grew up in a Christian house or? I don't know what I would call it, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. So... I grew up around Christianity for sure. Um, We celebrated Christmas and Easter, Thanksgiving. I don't know if Thanksgiving is a Christian holiday. Uh, Technically not, but it's somewhat (laughs) conducive with the message. Um, Yeah, and so I did all of those things. And my cousins are quite religious, I would say, Baptist Christian. And so I was always around them. I don't have any siblings. So I spent a lot of time with my cousins growing up and their parents. Um, their mother in particular is quite religious. And so I was definitely influenced a lot as a child. And um, But at the same time, my mother became uh, a member of this center. It's called the Center for... It was called the Center for Conscious Living at the time Mm -hmm. and it promoted itself as a non-denominational center where you could go every Sunday morning and it was interesting because it was folks of many different religions many different ideas about spirituality and religion so it wasn't like a church a traditional church then no but it was in a church which is the funny thing they purchased Mm -hmm. a church that had these beautiful stained glass windows. I'm not quite sure what denomination. And so we had services in this church and they owned a church and they owned a hall uh, a few streets over. And so we would um, go to the church to do the the sa- session, the, the, <laughs> the, service. the service, if you will. Yeah. And then we would go over to the hall after and eat cake and but it was an interesting place. They offered classes on something called the science of mind. Okay. Um, which what is, does that mean, the science of mind? So you you have a degree in like <laughs> neurobiology or something like that, don't you? Right. Um, and and I'm sure we'll get to that later. But mm-hmm. um, 
The Science of Mind, I believe, is a book written by a man named Ernest Holmes. And he mm-hmm. very much believed that the, the way you think will sort of manifest certain things in your life. Um, so just really sort of like the power of positive thinking. Mm. Yeah. So they would have... Did, did it work for you? Um. So it's interesting because I was a child and I never got into spirituality through that angle, but I did get into it through a tangential angle also related to that center. Um, I read work by a man named Eckhart Tolle in grade eight and his book... Uh, a New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose, was actually on Oprah's book club. And I watched Oprah every day with my mother. Wow. Yeah. And so- Talk about a church. I know, right? And so I learned about this man's book and they started talking about this book at the center because it was definitely in line with the teaching of the science mm-hmm. of mind by this man, Ernest Holmes. And so I read the book at age 13 and I can honestly say that book entirely changed my life. Mm-hmm. even to this day mm-hmm. and at the same time um i was also getting more interested in uh christianity too right so what was in the book that affected you so much i think the interesting thing about eckhart tolle's work and what really drew me in was this idea that you are not your thoughts. Mm. And that was the first time I had ever been exposed to that idea that I was not what I thought about, but rather I am the observer of my thoughts. Thoughts come and go. We have thousands of thoughts a day, yet I'm still here. And Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it was the first time where I started really thinking critically. And I was very young. I was like 13. But I really started thinking critically about like, okay, well, what does it mean to not be your thoughts? What am I then? And so that's sort of where the spirituality aspect comes in um, for Mm -hmm. me. And and it was like, it was sort of a seminal moment in my life. Did you find this, for lack of a better word, like church community that you were a part of to be intellectually fulfilling in that way? Um... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it was a a totally new idea to my life. It was completely it was completely different and it was so different from what my cousins were talking about. You know, it was so it was so unique. Um and it it kind of made like meditation make more sense to me. Mm-hmm. My mom was going to some meditation classes with her friends that were into did, this church. Did you do meditation? Yeah. I did a okay. little bit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. much more now in my life, but at the time, a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you grew up surrounded by extended family that were, you said, Baptist Christian. Mm -hmm. And then also you attended a church, which I'm sure that they would say was not a church at all. Right. Yeah. So... Like, were there conflicts in the family or were, mm-hmm. did, were, did they consider you unsaved or how did that all work? Yeah, my, I don't think my um, extended family, my aunt and my cousins were particularly impressed 
I don't know what they thought of it. I don't know if they thought it was a cult or demonic in some way. You know, that that's the language they would use. And it, it was really hard to explain to them and, and probably still hard. It's still hard for me to explain now really what it was. But I've been back there as an adult and listened to the messages. And, and they're they're just really about positive thinking, being grateful, virtue-based lessons, right? Like the, the power of taking time before uh, responding in anger, for example. Were matters of faith important to you growing up? And maybe you could define what you would define as faith itself. But you said you belonged to a community, that you got a lot out of the community and the intellectual side of it there. But would you say that matters of faith were important? Mm, I mean, as I got a little bit older, I entered the youth group at my cousin's Baptist church, and I really did believe in God and that Christ was the son of God. And, you know, you can read my diary entries about it and um, how badly I wanted to be a good Christian. And I think at that time, yes, absolutely. And I think faith is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you ever, so you started attending your cousin's church and everything? Yeah. So I kind of, at some point, and to be honest, I don't remember why, I ha I harbored no ill will toward the Center for Conscious Living, um, but I decided I wanted to join my cousin and mm -hmm. her best friend at my cousin's church. And I did youth group and it was wonderful. We went to Camp Nunamik. Um, for a winter camp, mm -hmm. I went there twice, I believe. I did Bible study, youth group. I really got into it in the ninth did you, grade. Did you get saved at any point? Do you mean baptized? I don't know. Whatever, whatever that would mean for that context. Like, what was the what was the context like at that camp or or in that kind of religious community? Was was there a great concern over your soul, or how how did that all work? I don't know if there was as great a concern over my soul as perhaps in other environments, but I definitely felt pressured to continue being a member mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. that church. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, I felt a, lot, a great deal of pressure, I right. think. Yeah, yeah. And to be a good Christian. Mm, what did that mean? to be a good Christian? I think a lot of it at the time had to do with sexual desire. I firmly believed I wanted to stay a virgin until marriage. Mm -hmm. And it was something we talked about a lot as young women in high school. And I went to a public high school. And so talking about sex was sort of everywhere and mm -hmm. I just promised myself and my cousins I would never break that vow. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
at the same time I was gaining some interest in boys and I think I was really confused. And, and I, I remember being very confused about a lot of the rules in the mm -hmm. Bible or feel, right. feeling like there were rules in the Bible. Right. Like any rules in particular? Well, I just remembered, um, you know, hearing things about how farmers are to leave a, a corner of their crop for the poor. And I remember there is an interpretation that the Bible says that women aren't to speak in church. I think something about tattoos, those aren't allowed. Um, things like that. And so I felt conflicted because I felt like, well, these are quite antiquated and seem cultural. Right. And but yet I'm following other rules right. in the Bible. And I just remember just feeling really lost there's, and no one really pointing. Yeah, there was a disconnect and no one really pointed that out to me. Like no one ever kind of sat me down and said, hey, like th there are some rules here that seem strange or contradictory or, you know, like no one ever kind of had that conversation with me. And I felt... Right. I felt very sort of alone in my faith. Like it felt kind of like um, it's, it's our way or the highway and yeah. don't question it. Yeah. And were you expected to go read the Bible alone and figure it out? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they definitely encouraged reading on our own. And I read a lot of the Bible. I used to mm -hmm. carry my Bible to school. Oh, I would, nice. I would bring it to school, public now school. Now that is a good Christian girl right there. <laughs> To I'd public have it school with like me. that. Yeah, I'd have it with me. And um, I just really wanted to do it right, <laughs> I think. I think I yeah. wanted to do it right. Yeah. 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 So was there conflict between your mom and was it your aunt about like what church to go to and stuff like that? Or, or when you stopped going to the Center for Conscious Living and started going to another church, mm -hmm. were, was there tension there at all? Um, if there was any tension, it wasn't significant, but my, my extended family, like my aunt had had problems with my grandfather mm -hmm. as well. My grandfather was an atheist and his wife, my grandmother was a staunch Catholic woman. And mm -hmm. so every so often there would be a blow up in the family about religion <laughs> and my grandfather would be very vocally atheist and my I just remember one time in particular was pretty bad and my aunt was very upset with my grandfather and but they're not blood related which oh, okay. is interesting yeah she married mm -hmm. into the family yeah yeah it's been um, interesting yeah are there any other sort of childhood experiences that shape the way that your thinking about faith or religion or whatever has has affected yeah absolutely and um so i had another really interesting set of experiences as a child because i was babysat by a baha'i family oh and the baha'i family actually after my day at the daycare was done my mother would come over and her and I and the couple, the, the older couple who were Baha'i, mm -hmm. we actually did um, like a Baha'i 
book study together where we mm. actually filled out mm -hmm. worksheets mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. the Baha'i faith. Yeah, and there's probably not, this is in Winnipeg, there's probably not a, a lot of Baha'i people in Winnipeg. I don't think so. I, I think I probably met them all. Yeah, the you lucked time. out. You met them all. Yeah, and so that was interesting too because that's a newer religion. Um, right. And they follow um, one man or perhaps the man and his father. I don't quite remember. Abdullah Baha'i or something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, I don't know. And I'm probably butchering mm -hmm. it and offending many people. My apologies. <laughs> but um, that, That's standard. Yeah, and so we uh, we would do Baha'i studies after after daycare, and I went to the Baha'i Center with them one time and did a little bit of a reading, and I told them that I was going to convert to to the Baha'i religion, and mm -hmm. kind of immediately after I said that, um, I remember feeling just a flood of regret because interesting, I didn't mean it and very shortly after that was when i started going to the youth group in the baptist youth group so well, clearly why did you I say was, it why did you say it if you didn't mean it because i i was i was i remember being in the room in the center and we were sitting in a circle and we were reading from this book on the religion and i was so young and i was quite precocious and i was a really excellent reader and people kind of came up to me and said you're an amazing reader you're so mm -hmm. smart for being so young. And mm -hmm. I felt like so full of pride at how well I did. And I told my, um, the, the woman that I had been doing this with, like, I'll, I'll be a Baha'i. Yeah, this is mm -hmm. what I want. I think I felt just an overwhelming sense of community. And I think community was really important for me because I grew up without siblings and I was raised by a single mom. Mm -hmm. And I think I was so hungry for community but yet it all kind of felt like um i was hungry for communities that didn't necessarily have my best interests at heart or were kind of poaching me or were kind of um try really trying to convert me mm -hmm. I, th I think i always sort of had a sense i didn't know how to put a finger on it at the time but i think i felt pushed mm by all these different groups, the Baha'is and by the, the Baptist Christians and yeah. to some extent the center. Um, but I think less so, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's because of its non-denominational na non nature. Right, yeah. I think there's something about being human, though, that we like, we, people like it when other people agree with us. So when somebody, when somebody says, yes, I want to become one of you mm -hmm. like it's just natural for that community to feel a huge sense of pride and a huge mm -hmm. sense of um of affirmation mm -hmm. like, and relief uh, i imagine right. like okay we we did our job we got someone else yeah. on board and that's why there's the, the stories of conversions especially the stories of the conversions of really reprobate people <laughs> are really popular right um, oh, look at this super devout Christian who became a Muslim, right? That would be a huge win for the Muslims or the, uh, vice versa as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> you have these stories in, in most religions. Um, so do you currently maintain like similar beliefs right now with your mom still? Does she still attend the, uh, the center? She attends the center at times. <clears throat> she attends... 
Um, she's attended some attended some Christian services as well. Mm-hmm. 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 I don't attend anything now. Mm-hmm. Um, I you attend had, lots of things, just not religious. Just things. not religious things. I had a really painful moment in the Christian church in the baptist christian church that really turned me off mm-hmm. from christianity it really turned me off from that kind of christianity do you want to share that right now or no of course yeah Great. um so I'd love to hear it. yeah i mean I, I was in that place right where there was this baha'i voice and there was this center for conscious living voice and there's this Baptist Christian voice and I remember attending youth group and I was just having so many doubts because at this time in my life I had become great friends with a Jewish girl and I knew some people who were gay Mm -hmm. and being gay was explicitly wrong in this church. It was explicitly talked about as being wrong and sinful. And so I was really, really fighting internally with this idea of, okay, we have a God who created someone who is gay. Why would he turn them away at Mm -hmm, heaven's mm -hmm. gates? And I was really, really struggling with this. And I was in youth group and someone raised the question to the youth group leader. And to be honest, I'm sure the youth group leader wasn't expecting this question and, and really had no idea. But um, the the young person asked, you know, if the Muslims think they're right and the Buddhists think they're right and the Jewish people think they're right, then how do we know we're right? And I was expecting this sort of clarifying moment. And I, I remember where I was sitting in that room. That was such an important moment for me. And the youth group leader just said, because we are right. And flawless logic. And it was so disappointing. And I never went again, actually. I never went again. And I was someone mm-hmm. who was going every week and mm-hmm. doing doing the youth events. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a couple Christian friends and they sort of said, well, it's normal to have periods of doubt. You know, you'll, you'll get back into it. This is just God testing you. Of course. But, you know, it never came back in the same way. Yeah. In the same way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> would you, would you, would you characterize that as somewhat, were you did you feel like you were betraying something or did you feel like you were betrayed or what were the feelings associated with that that youth pastor saying that i was angry for my friends Mm -hmm. i was angry for my jewish friends i was angry for my gay friends i felt like you don't even have an answer as to why these folks are excluded Mm mm-hmm from mm-hmm. our story, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not only those folks, but most of the people that have ever lived are excluded from that kind of story. 
Right. And I, I felt compassion toward them. And I kind of, I, I think I felt uh, like I wanted to stick it to the man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I felt a sense of willfulness. Like, how dare you tell me that people I love who are great moral people won't be in heaven with me when mm -hmm. I die. Heaven mm -hmm. without them isn't heaven. Mm -hmm. And I felt really discouraged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so we just talked maybe about a little bit of a negative seminal moment in yes. your life story. Are there any like positive seminal moments? Many. Um, mm -hmm. Many, many. Um, but they're not directly related to Christianity. What are they related to? Um, I really think they are related to being connected to God. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have an example of a moment like mm -hmm. this? I have a lot of examples. I'm happy to share them. I remember... You know, I'll kind of go from the mildest to maybe the more extreme examples. But I, I had a moment um, where I just remember so vividly being eight years old or so and lying in my bed and feeling a very intensely deep feeling of peace. And it turned into euphoria. And I was crying from connectedness mm -hmm. i can't really explain it other than that i just felt so connected to the vast wild wonder that is the universe i i just remember that moment so vividly and and i had other interesting moments too when i was seven um i was in in a car with my mother and I had a very strong feeling we were going to be in a car accident and less than 10 seconds later a car rear-ended us and so those are those are a few moments where it was like okay I don't know it, it, maybe there's something else maybe it's more than just this sort of earthly plane you know and mm -hmm. um and and perhaps those aren't aren't great examples. I I had another experience where this was more recent. This was a few years ago, and I was lying in bed and I was in the space between wake and sleep, and I had a visual and auditory hallucination that was quite vivid, and I saw a hydra, right. Mm. A, like a like a many-headed snake. A many-headed creature. Yeah, yeah. like a, like a snake and I heard a voice say um you are god looking at the other faces of god. And it was just this idea of this body the body was god and the heads were humanity. Mm -hmm. And but we're all connected to that. And mm -hmm. I mean, again, we could write off all of these experiences easily, right? We could say, okay, you felt euphoric as a child because it was just an intense emotional state for whatever reason. Your neurons fired that way for some reason. Mm -hmm. Or the premonition about the car accident. 
perhaps I was just thinking of a car accident and being anxious and all of a sudden it happened and it's just a pure coincidence. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, an, a one-off auditory hallucination, that just happens sometimes, especially when you're in the space between wake and sleep, right? It's sort of a dream state. Um, but but I've even had other things happen too, or I've had things happen to friends. And again, perhaps they're just coincidences and a lot of my atheist friends will convince me or try to convince me that they are coincidences. Um, but I think, I really think my beliefs align most closely with this idea of pantheism, that everything is God, energy is God, we're all god (laughs) Mm -hmm, we're all mm -hmm. god looking at the faces of god and Mm -hmm. and the idea of a transcendent god or something separate from that does not align with my view at this time um but but all of these experiences have sort of solidified that belief and again it's it's faith right i can't prove this Mm -hmm. um and i can't prove there isn't a transcendent god either of course, I can't prove or disprove any of this. And yet, when you ask about faith, I think that's what I would say I believe in. I believe we're all connected. Um, we're all, I think we're all the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think we're all one. And, um, you know, I had a really interesting experience literally this week. Um, so, I do some creative things and I felt very pulled to create some small drawings and place them or put them on Instagram. And this is something I've never really done before, but I write poetry and I've created some drawings before and I felt very pulled to create three drawings about grief and loss and heartbreak. And I created one drawing the third of the th- of the three, and it was just a little picture that I drew of the date, which was August 4th, and I drew a little wall calendar showing the date, and I wrote underneath it, every day without you can still be a good day. And I don't know why I wrote it. I just felt pulled to write that. Um, inspiration sort of struck and I I posted this on Instagram and then someone messaged me and said, Bev, August 4th is the day my mom died. Can I have, can I have a copy of your drawing? And I was floored, you know, because I don't know why I drew it. I don't know why I chose the date August 4th to draw and it, I felt pulled to draw it. I felt pulled to post it on Instagram. And it was just, again, it's a coincidence perhaps, but it felt like a message. You know, every day without you can still be a good day. And so when things like that happen, and my atheist friends say, don't look into it, it's a coincidence. Perhaps it's just my human feeble mind looking for patterns, but, you know, you hear stories about people who know that someone's in trouble before they're in trouble, right? You hear stories of, I had a funny feeling and I had to check and sure enough, the baby had stopped breathing, right? You hear these things and 
again, maybe it's coincidence, but it's just so hard for me to chalk it up to that. And those moments really make me feel that sense of connectedness. And, and I guess too, and, and perhaps this is answering another question, I think the Big Bang happened in a very specific way and the dominoes fell in the way that they did. And so I don't necessarily believe in free will. I believe that things happen the way they happen because they're meant to happen that way. And there's no other way things could happen because, you know, even as I'm speaking now, there's no other way or any other word that's going to come out right now than this one because every neurochemical pathway that's ever happened before this and every experience I've had has happened in a certain way. And so when I think of that and I, I almost feel like, you know, the big bang happened in that precise way. And it's almost like we are inside of a picture, right? Like a, you could picture like a, a photograph because there's no other way that this could be. And, and a, I've talked to atheists as well and scientists and there's some notion of this idea of quantum randomness that there is some randomness in uh, the way, you know, molecules form or come together. So perhaps I'm totally off base. Um, But I don't know. It's what I believe. I guess that's what faith is. So, Mm -hmm. Do you find that you... (laughs) believe the way that you do because it makes you comfortable or are there aspects of what you believe about the world that make you uncomfortable for example the free will question for some people i've had this discussion with some people where it's a it's a matter of comfort for them right but for some other people it it would be like a a complete loss of any kind of control that you think that you have and and uh, you start losing it a little bit so How do your beliefs maybe comfort you or make you uncomfortable? My beliefs allow me to feel overwhelming empathy for other people because... Is that a a good thing? Yeah, I believe it is Um, because I have a value of empathy and compassion for others that is my guiding principle. And it's something I actively think about. And I I firmly believe empathy is both a state and a trait. I think folks are attuned or have a genetic predisposition to feeling a certain amount of empathy and compassion for others. I'm kind of using them synonymously. Of course, they're different. And then I think you can also choose to, to be in someone else's shoes and be empathetic and compassionate. And so when I say that my beliefs allow me to be more empathetic and compassionate, what I mean by that is if, if I do firmly believe, which I say I do now, and I don't know if I'll always feel this way, but if I believe that the dominoes fell the way they did, right, the Big Bang happened in a specific way, then I can't necessarily place blame on anyone for doing anything that they do. And this is a really contentious thing that I'm talking about, but Brene Brown, the famous self-help guru, she's a PhD social worker. Um, 
she says blame is when we look at someone else and we say, if I was in your shoes, if I was in your skin, looking at the world through those same eyes, I would have done differently. And the truth is you wouldn't have. And so I think these beliefs allow me to be more empathetic and compassionate. And, and, you know, um, when you're talking about comfort, I mean, it's interesting because I think it'd be very easy to say, well, okay, if you're pantheistic and you believe everything is God, then isn't nothing God, right? Because if everything in the universe is God, then there's... Then what's the point of even believing that? Then what's the point? And it's interesting, and I'd like to learn more about this, but um, do you know about, like, Spinoza, like him at all? Yeah, a little bit. I I honestly don't know too much about um, the theology of pantheism aside from uh, very kind of shallow understandings. Right. I mean, to be honest, probably so do I. It's just the it's just the label that makes the most right. sense. <laughs> I remember we had this discussion like two years ago. We were walking through downtown Toronto and and we were literally talking about pantheism mm-hmm. versus like panentheism, uh, which is the idea that that God is fully and completely present in every single thing, but that the things themselves aren't God themselves. Mm. Uh, almost as if God is the, for lack of a better metaphor, almost like the soul which animates mm-hmm. the body that is the universe. Um, and we had really good discussions there. Um, well, I was just going to mention Spinoza, Yuri, mm-hmm. just to, to follow the pathway, because he was, from what I know, he was either a rabbi or studying to become a rabbi, and he mm-hmm. uh, was excommunicated because yeah. he had these really radical beliefs that no, everything is God. There, there isn't separateness. He also uh, advocated for learning about the Bible, but taking God out of the picture. So, so really trying to, when you read Genesis, let's take away an understanding of God out of it and understand it with atheism as the default philosophy, right, for understanding the Bible. And that was another thing that got him in trouble as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it always interests me. Well, why pantheism and why not atheism? Right? Why did he land there? And is that is that because of the context he was in, the culture he was in, how he was raised? I don't mm-hmm. know. I'd love to ask him if he yeah, was alive. Yeah. Oh, now you can't. You can only read his books. Yeah, you can just read his books. So you mentioned Spinoza. What other books or authors or um, friends or teachers that have influenced you the most? Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned Eckhart Tolle and absolutely Eckhart Tolle. He was the first person who turned me on to this idea that, like I was saying right at the outset, I am not my thoughts. I'm the observer behind the thoughts. And so what's the observer? The observer is being. The observer Mm -hmm. is pure connection, connectedness to everything. And so... Like the, the be like the like presence is God, like God is there, and so I would absolutely say him. I would say Tara Brock, she is a PhD as well, and 
does a lot of work on radical acceptance. Um, sort of accepting things as they are without trying to change them or sort of wailing against life when life gives us hard things. So her, Eckhart Tolle, um, Kristen Neff as well, she is one of the creators of um, mindful self-compassion therapy. And again, it's this idea of, okay, instead of reacting to this emotional event, can we pause and can we, um, you know, tap into this idea of common humanity that we've all suffered and remember love? And how can we give that love to ourselves the way that we would give love to a small child or to a friend in need? And so I suppose these aren't religious figures, but they are spiritual in some in some way, and they've definitely influenced my thinking. Um, I also read a lot of Wayne Dyer growing up as well. He's a self-help guru as well, and his teachings were are very much in line with Eckhart Tolle's teachings. Again, it's this idea of remembering presence, being present. That's where God is. Um, yeah, I mean, I could even say Oprah to some extent. I mean, yeah. I no watched her every day. Yeah, I watched her every day. She was definitely part of my life in a big way growing up and, mm -hmm. you know, turned me on to Eckhart Tolle and she runs this podcast called Super Soul Sunday. She has f folks like Dr. Brene Brown on her podcast and, and, um, you know, Dr. Brene Brown is a Christian woman mm -hmm. and her her beliefs too influence her books and her writing and her self-help books. And yeah, I've gained a lot of knowledge from those. So yeah, it's been um it's been interesting. Uh, I heard a really amazing quote from a teacher at the University of Toronto um who studies wisdom. And I'm forgetting his name. It's escaping me, but I'm sure you could Google it. <laughs> I think it's the Wisdom Sorry, he's, Lab. He's, he studies wisdom? He studies how... What does that mean? He studies where and from what I know, where and how we perceive wisdom. Interesting. And he, he like, where in the brain, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. There's a neurobiological component. And he right. talks about, um, you know, back in the day, perhaps more folks back in the day received their wisdom from their priest or from their pastor. Mm -hmm. and I now, like the sound of that. <laughs> and now a lot of wisdom, unfortunately, comes from Google. Mm -hmm. As my mother calls Google, the professor. The professor. <laughs> and so... It's interesting because when he said that, I kind of had what Oprah calls an aha moment. And I said, all right, like I do get all my wisdom from Google, but Google's not human. And it's kind of a proxy for human connection. We maybe feel connected when we're on Google to others, but we're not. We're not truly connected. And so that was a really um, sort of interesting insight and just reminded me it's just so important to listen to the source and... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, read books and talk to people and to... Yeah, who would have thought talking to people I know, would be helpful? and to watch lectures. I watch a lot of lectures on, on YouTube, which is, I guess, a good thing. But again, the connectedness piece, I mean, there's a lot of...
there's no uh, there's no substitution for connecting with another human being. If you'd like to listen to the second half of this interview, you can head over to patreon.com slash priest. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?